You're listening to Inward with Rabbi Joey Rosenfeld on the Shefa Podcast Network. Join Rabbi Joey as he guides us through the world and major works of Kabbalah, Hasidic masters, and Jewish philosophy, shedding light on the inner life of the soul. Okay, so Be'ezra Sashem, tonight we're going to be starting a new series of Shirim, and the series is going to be titled Hope. And hope itself is already a, a difficult translation of the idea that I'm trying to convey. The Hebrew word that we're going to be utilizing most often in the writings of our tzaddikim and our teachers is going to be tikva or kivoy or kaveh, as it's expressed in Tarsha B'Tzav, in Tehillim, very often throughout Tanakh. But as we're going to see, when discussing hope, it's almost impossible to ignore a cluster of other effective spaces, a cluster of other human experiences which enter into the space of hope, elicit hope, feel like hope, smell like hope, might be different expressions of the same experience. But nevertheless, as we see these sight words or these key words scattered throughout the writings of our tzaddikim, we're going to see that they're pointing us in the same direction. Some of those words in Hebrew are going to be tzipia or metzape, teshuka, ga'aguim, yearning, desire, anticipation, patience, waiting, chikoi. The common denominator behind all of these effective stances, behind all of these lived moods that emerge from within the neshama, expressing themselves outwards in lived experience, is that they are firmly planted in the present moment, yet they reach beyond the present moment in the hopes of coming in contact with something that stands beyond the present moment. Now, the typical word that we use to describe that which stands beyond the present moment is the future, is the atid, is that which is coming or that which has not happened yet. But getting stuck in the phrases of time, of past, present, and future, would leave us missing the main point of what I'm going to try and show and tease out of our different tzaddikim. Because the typical association that many people have with the concept of hope, or with the concept of kivoy or tikva, or even yearning for something or desiring something, is that as the person exists in the present moment, as the individual abides in their setting, right here, right now, there's something missing. There's some lack, there's some deficiency, there's some desire that needs to be filled, there's some hope that stands at the ready to be fulfilled. 
But the present mindedness that the individual finds themselves in is typically associated with one of privation, one of deprivation, and one of lack and missing something. And hope or desire or expectancy or anticipation or yearning is the mood or the emotional strength that we use to project ourselves towards the future, to look towards some future point wherein that which is missing in our lives or that which is not present within ourselves, which makes us uncomfortable, or that pressure that builds upon the soul, which seeks relief in the future, it's something that stands beyond the present moment. It's something that stands outside of our current grasp. And therefore hope is a method or a mode in which the present situation reaches towards a future hope, thereby giving us the belief or the hope that one day in the future, things will change. One day in the off distant future that my mind can't grasp, something will happen that will fulfill me. What I wanna try and show, and I believe that our tzaddikim are more than explicit about this as we're going to see, is that kivoy or tikva or tsipia hope, desire, anticipation, all of the synonyms that we're going to be using interchangeably is not simply a present projection towards some future destination which stands outside of our present mindedness, but rather hope is a vehicle, is an experience, an almost impossible experience that somehow, some way, allows us as we exist in the present moment to find access within ourselves and within our reality to that which we desire. So that by hoping for something or by yearning for something or by being mishtotek for something or having ga'aguim for something, we're not simply projecting into a non-present future that stands at the ready to emerge at some distant point, but rather we are drawing that future into the present moment itself. So that hope stops simply being a way towards an end and it flips and it becomes a means through which we experience the future within the present moment itself. And that even though hope is not the same as the deliverance of that which we desire. And even though yearning for something is still experiencing the lack of that thing, what we're going to see throughout our writings and throughout our tzaddikim is that hope and desire and yearning are uniquely suited emotional strengths that create the paradoxical reality of having that thing almost as if we actually have it, even though it stands far away in some impossible distant place. So that until that thing actually arrives, until that great day that we all yearn for, and that thing which we're all waiting for its arrival, until that actually happens, what we are left with is the next best thing which is the human experience of hope and desire 
which draws the potency of that future hope into the present moment. So that even as we sit in our despondency, in our lack, in our brokenness, or in our hopeless state, the mechanisms of hope and the mechanisms of desire draw on a psychological and a spiritual level that which we hope for into our present-minded state. So that even though we haven't arrived at the destination, we can still find a way of tasting the destination within the path towards the destination itself. Almost as if we can draw the future redemption into the present state of exile so that in exile itself and in that broken state of wanting, we can still have a glimmer, a taste, a hint, a remez, an impression of some future event within the present moment. Now the question that's going to need to be asked is what value is there if we still don't have that thing that we so deeply desire? And for some people, that thing is redemption. For some people, that thing is personal redemption. Some people want historic or collective redemption. Some people want Hatzlacha in Parnassa. Some people want health. Some people want a settledness from their anxiety. Some people are seeking relief from depression. Some people are seeking renewal within the broken, banal mundanity of the day-to-day. Whatever it is that the heart of the individual desires, the question about hope can then be asked, which is that if at the end of the day, hope still doesn't draw the future into the present moment, hope doesn't deliver that which I'm desiring, What value does it serve? And what I would like to posit, and I believe that this is going to become clear by Ezra Sashem through the writings of our different tzaddikim and the different prophets, both holy and profane throughout our tradition, that hoping for something, desiring something, yearning for something, longing for something, in spite of the fact that it is not its time of arrival yet, creates the opportunity wherein each and every present moment of our experience becomes impregnated with the potential and the burgeoning strength of redemption. That each and every moment in which we find ourselves longing or yearning or hoping towards some distant horizon which stands just at the limit, not quite present and not quite beyond our rational expectations, that form of yearning, when drawn into the present moment of the still unredeemed experience, forces the expectation of redemption into that which is still unredeemed, so that every unredeemed moment every mundane moment, every moment that is not quite the end yet, is now filled with an expectancy or a desire or a hope or a wonder of perhaps right now this is it. 
Perhaps this moment is the moment we've been waiting for. Perhaps this very rega, this very experience of time in my life is the time that I have been waiting for my entire life. And even though when what we hope for doesn't arrive in that moment, thereby darkening and graying the hope that we had for the redemption of that moment, nevertheless, what we come to find is that even though the redemption or the personal redemption that we so deeply desired in that present moment didn't arrive, nevertheless, that moment was redeemed through hope. That that moment became a moment of tzipia Yeshua, of a yearning and a desire for redemption. Yes, it wasn't quite redemption. Yes, we haven't been redeemed from our personal confines and constraints that we find ourselves in. Yes, it wasn't the historical arrival of that which stands ready to appear. But nevertheless, that moment has been redeemed in the sense that it was transformed from a moment of despondency and hopelessness into a moment of hope and yearning. And the postulation would be that even though hope is not satisfied in that moment, even though yearning doesn't find its ultimate destination in that very moment, nevertheless, the dissemination of the hope towards the future into the present moment redeems the present moment by creating a space for yearning and anticipation and hope and desire for that which stands beyond us. So that in the words of our tzaddikim and the words of our teachers, what we're going to find is that hope, very different than the typical conception of hope, is not simply a desire for something that stands at the ready in the future, but rather hope is the vehicle through, through which we redeem the present moment, even if the future doesn't arrive right now. Because by our desire to draw the future into the present, what we've done is we've forced the present to enlarge in itself, to make space for the possibility of the future. And what more could be expected of us? What more could a Rabboni Shalom, could the creator of the world expect from us than to take each moment, to take each hovet, to take each present moment of time that we experience in this world, and prepare it and open it to be ready for the arrival of that which stands wholly beyond human rational logic. Our job is not necessarily to ensure that the future arrives. Our job in the language of Chazal and our teachers is to ensure that every moment of the present is a moment of yearning for the future. The future arrives without our considerations. The future will come when the future comes. And Be'ezwa Sashem, the future should arrive tomorrow. There was a certain tzaddik who used to give that blessing over. He used to say that the Messiah, redemption, the eschatological stage, the telos of being, Mashiach should come tomorrow. And his students asked him, they said, Rebbe, Rebbe, why not today? Why not say that Mashiach should come today? 
And the Rebbe answered, he says, the reason I say tomorrow is so that you would ask that very question. I say tomorrow, so you ask, why not today? So the fact that it hasn't arrived yet doesn't mean that it shouldn't arrive right now. Or as our tzaddikim have said, tekef umiyad mamish, faster than fast, quicker than quick, more immediate than immediacy. But as we find ourselves in that space of that although it may tarry, although the redemption hasn't arrived yet, we still are forced or commanded to elevate and redeem each and every moment, to open the gates of the present mindedness that we find ourselves in for the potency or the possibility of the arrival of that which stands in the future. So hope is not so much the demands for the future to come, but hope is our ability to transform the present moment into a moment that is worthy of receiving the present, of receiving the future. This, humbly I submit, might be a way of understanding the statement of our teachers, of Chazal, of our wise individuals of blessed memory when they state that in the future, when an individual expires in health and after 120 years of good living, and they go back to the celestial judgment space, the courthouse, those gates that block the individual from entering in, one of the first questions they're going to be asked is, Tzapisa Yeshua, did you yearn for salvation? Did you hope for redemption? The question is not, did you believe that redemption would come? The question is not, did you fight with tooth and nail to convince others of the emerging redemption? But rather, the question is a much more humble, more personal, more modest question. Did you yearn for salvation? Did you take the present moment and transform it into a space that was ready to receive the future? And did you persist in your yearning and your hope in spite of the future's non-arrival? That is what is demanded of us. The end comes in a space of mindlessness. As our teachers have told us, Mashiach ba behesach hadas, that the Messiah will arrive in a state of lack of attention lack of expectation, lack of focusing on it. That's not up to us. Our teachers have very strong language about individuals who have tried to assure the specific time or moment of redemption. What we are responsible to do, according to our tzaddikim, is to prepare ourselves in each and every moment so that the unrefined and unredeemed present itself can reveal the very real potential that it has, which is that the present already holds a trace of the future. That by hoping and by yearning and by desiring, we draw the future into the present, thereby redeeming the present as if it were already a taste of the future, drawing the next world into this world. 
the ability to see our world, to see the future in the present moment, even before the future arrives. How does that happen? By yearning and by hoping for the future. Whatever that future moment represents for a person. In the Zohar HaKadosh, the book of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, if it could even be called a book, the world of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, the textual landscape, the dreamscape, the emotional space that is awoken by the words written in the name of Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai and by Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai. The Zohar HaKadosh has a very interesting way of referring to the world to come, of referring to that future which we all hope for, to that redemption, whatever it might look like, personal, collective, historical, non-historical, with relation to our symptoms, with relation to our family members, whatever it might be. The Zohar HaKadosh, when describing the world to come, refers to it as Alma Da'asi. The world to come. The very basic translation is Olam Haba, the world to come. But there's another way of reading it in Aramaic which is Alma Da'asi, Da'asi Tadir, the world that is perpetually coming. As if to say, the future is not some point on a temporal map that stands beyond human recognition at the present moment, and that our job is to slowly trudge along the broken process of history until we eventually arrive there. But rather, Alma Da'asi means that a world that is perpetually coming. It is a future that is melting into the present as we speak, so that each and every moment of present-mindedness, of personal situatedness, of abiding in this world, of being in the world, provides another opportunity of creating that crack, of opening that space, wherein the waters of the future can drip into our present-mindedness. Oilam Haba is not simply a world that is situated in the future. It is a future world that finds presence in the day-to-day experience of the human being if we open ourselves up to it. As the Katzka Rebbe famously responded to a chassid who said, where is Hashem? Where is Hashem? Where is redemption? Where is the future? And the Katzka Rebbe, the fire of Katzka, responded, wherever you let it in. Hope is the way that we crack the present moment open so that the future can drip into the present, as opposed to the common conception of hope as a present moment which looks towards the future. What we're going to see is that hope is a way of drawing the future into the present moment. And a few words about Bezra Sashem, what the series of Shirim is going to look like, because it's relatively new in terms of what I have tried to teach. First and foremost, what I want to state is that just as it was incredibly painful and difficult and and serious for me to transition from teaching the words of Ravitchermeyer Morgenstern Shlita, after receiving Eitsa to move forward, the Nachama that I received for myself was that I went on to teach the words of Rabbi Nachman. And as I heard from the mouth of the tzaddik himself, from Avichamaya Morgenstern, that it's okay because teaching Rabbi Nachman's Torah is really just teaching the source of my Torah. 
So this is not a transition away from the teachings of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. But rather, everything I say, and all of the different tzaddikim, the Rabbi Rashab, the tzaddikim of Chabad, the tzaddikim of Ijbetz and Radzid, the tzaddikim of the base magistrate of the Vilna Gon, the secular righteous individuals, Kafka, Levinas, Benjamin, Derrida, our profane prophets who spoke so deeply of yearning and desire, all of them are going to operate within the general framework of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. Lahavdil Emanuel Levinas, a Jewish philosopher and a philosopher of Judaism who are going to be introduced a little bit more to in Nishirim, something that I haven't let myself do in the past, writes in the introduction to one of his most profound works, also one of his first philosophical works, called Totality and Infinity. A difficult work, but a work that is redemptive in a very real way. And in his introduction, he makes an apology for not quoting another Jewish philosopher and a philosopher of Judaism, Franz Rosenzweig. Franz Rosenzweig wrote another book about yearning for Mashiach and hoping towards the future. He called that book the Star of Redemption. Emmanuel Levinas apologizes and he says, after thinking the different sources that he's going to attribute a lot of his thinking to, he says, I am not going to quote Franz Rosenzweig in this book, because to quote Franz Rosenzweig in specific places would imply that wherever I don't quote him is not related to his work. Therefore, Levinas says, I'm going to refrain from quoting Rosenzweig to show that everything I say is rooted in Rosenzweig. So what I want to say for myself, and, and this is for nobody else, everything that we're going to be talking about with regards to hope and tikva and kivoy, in this series of shirim, from all of the different tzaddikim that we're going to encounter, is still within the orbit, within the solar system, within the galaxy of Rabbi Nachman's Torah. And even though it's not going to be the Torah of Rabbi Nachman, <coughs> it is going to be the Torah of other tzaddikim that are learned through the lens of what Rabbi Nachman of Breslov has enabled me to understand within my own personal experience and within my own method of reading Torah texts and reading in general. So that although we're not learning Rabbi Nachman, the constellation of different tzaddikim that we're going to be focusing on to create a new system of thought where difference is collapsed to show a deep unity that exists between disparate sources, is all still going to be taking place within the solar system that we can refer to as the teachings or the soul of Rabbi Nachman of Breslov. That tzaddik who yelled so strongly and so deeply for generations of ein shum yeyush ba'olam klal, that there's no such thing as hopelessness. What I want to try and introduce in the next 15 minutes or so is going to be somewhat of a conceptual framework wherein all of the future shirim are going to take place. I'm going to try and describe or express in a very limited amount of time and with limited preparation and capacity to express it properly, a sugya, a topic discussed in our mekubalim, in our Kabbalists, primarily by the saintly and godly Arizal, 
Rav Yitzchak Luria Schusa Yogan Elenu, the luminary, the star that emerged at a very difficult point in history, stayed for a very short amount of time, but whose luminous expression enlightened the future generations of Judaism and the world at large, Ad Hayom and Ad Vyasa Mashiach, until today and until the coming of the Messiah. We're going to look at a sugya discussed and introduced by the Arizal in a humble way, so that we can conceptually frame all of the discussions of the psychology of hope that we're going to be discussing in the next future shirim of this series on hope as it's expressed through different tzaddikim. Now, what we're going to be looking at is we're going to look at a teaching that the Arizal comes up with or describes for us or explicates in a book that was compiled by his main disciple, Rav Chaim Vital, and it's a book called Sefer Eitz Chaim, the book of the tree of life. And that name is not happenstance, but rather the idea as described in very early sources is that there are two types of Torah, two types of ideas, two modes of thinking, or if one can say two modes of being that are described at the beginning of the Torah. There is the path of the Eitzah the tree of life, and there is the path of the Eitzah Das the path of the tree of knowledge, which is aware of good and evil. Now we all know the path of the tree of knowledge of good and evil because we live in it, because we experience it, because all of the difficulties and all of the pain and all of the anxiety, both on a personal level and on a collective level, that each and every individual has experienced from the inception of history towards the end of history, are all symptomatic and expressions of that initial decision of Adam HaRishon to partake of the Eitz Hadas Tovarah, to enter into the stream of human consciousness, which sees things in a duplicitous, duplicated manner where there's a double, where there is tov and ra, where there appears to be separateness and distinction, which is the birthplace of all possibility, yes, but it's also the birthplace of all pain and suffering and all difficulty that we as the Jewish people and the world at large have experienced since that very fateful and difficult experience of alienation, of the originary alienation, of being kicked out of Gan Eden of being pushed beyond our rightful space so that everything else that we experience in our long history, both personal and collective, is experienced as deferred, as being at the wrong place at the wrong time, of always trying to catch up, of always trying to return from the two to the one, from confusion to clarity. We all know the Eitzadas Tovarah very well. But what many of us are not aware of is that there's another path, the path referred to as the Etzachayim, the path referred to as the tree of life. Now, the tree of life, that tree which Adam Arishon did not partake in, is still part of us. It's still a possibility of us. It's still something that we have on a very unconscious, potentiated level that we have access to. 
And when we learn the inner teachings of Torah, in particular the teachings of the Arizal, as they are elucidated and collected and compiled and expressed by his Talmud, Rav Chaim Vital, and his Talmud, Rav Yisrael Sarub, what we taste is a taste of the Eitzachayim. We give ourselves a momentary glimpse of a world that is redeemed from that duplicitous experience, from that broke down palace type of experience that we find ourselves in, from the stagnant smell and odor of the addicts of our lives, from that dead place that we all experience life from. We have a moment to taste of the Yitzchayim. And therefore the Arizal named the book, the compilation of his teachings, Yitzchayim, the tree of life. For all those who taste from this book, as the Lashem writes, know the true taste of what it means to taste from the Yitzchayim. And the Arizal opens up his Sefer with a very important question. How does the many emerge from the one? How can finitude and distinction and suffering emerge from the unity of God? How could the all-perfect, all-consuming, all-powerful, ever-present, transcendent reality of godliness in its essence, so to speak, how can that make room for brokenness, for perversion, for sickness, for death, for sadness, for mourning? for anxiety, for depression, for all of the different symptoms that we can use to describe present reality. And the Arizal reveals a teaching. The Arizal was not machadesh a teaching, God forbid. The Arizal did not conceive of a new teaching, but rather the Arizal revealed a teaching that was hitherto unrevealed, that was underground, that was subterranean that was rooted in a fountain that was not made by the hands of man. And the Arizal answers for us in one of the most poignant and poetic descriptions of theology to date, to the extent that it's not simply the Jewish mystics who study this idea, but it's poets and postmodern theorists and philosophers of all sorts and all colors and all kinds that have been gravitating to this idea that the Arizal describes albeit they were drinking from a broken faucet. But that faucet itself, that faucet of Gershom Sholem, was capable of conveying the essence on a certain diminuated level of what the Arizal was trying to say. The Arizal says, if you want to understand how Hashem, the infinite power of all powers, the perfect of all perfection, the Mechuyev HaMetzios, the only true existence in reality, that space of Ein Oid Milvado, how that space can make room for separateness? The answer is the tzimtzum. The answer is the initial contraction of godliness. That the infinite removed itself. That the infinite concealed itself. That the infinite contracted itself in order so that something other than the infinite could exist. Now, what we're not going to get into right now is the particulars of the tzimtzum. But if anybody is interested in the shir that I gave on the Leshem Shavuva Chaloma, I believe that the title was Concealment for the Sake of Disclosure. What I try and describe there is how abundantly clear it should be 
to both the students of the Vilna Gona and the students of the Baal Shem Tov, that nobody, perhaps one person, but not really, nobody felt that the Tzimtzum was actual. Nobody felt or nobody read this narrative of the Arizal as God, God forbid, fully removing his presence from reality. God forbid. And we'll leave it at that. But God made it appear as if his presence was absent, almost as if absence was present. And that constriction and that concealment and that initial darkness, that removal of the light, leaves an empty space, an empty circle, Kav And that circle is referred to as the Chalal HaPanui, the vacant space, the void. Chalal, the empty void, Rav Chaim Velazhener points out to us, and different Sadiqim point out to us, is the same language as Chilul, as profane, as something that is uncouth and unholy. It's the same language as Chol, as mundanity, as that which is unredeemed. Chalal is another word for a corpse, the existence of death, where the body which was once suffused with the life force that gave it life is now absent as if that life force has departed. This Chalal HaPanui, this perverted space, this emptiness, this void, that existential vacuum is the source of all that is difficult, of all that is broken, of all that is unredeemed, of all that is profaned, of all that is dirty and scary and anxiety-producing and death-inducing. It's the birthplace of all of it. The apparent concealment of godliness gives birth to all sorts of frightening images which we are experiencing in our own individual ways in our generation, commemorating tonight on a night of commemoration, a night of remembrance of that which happened, that which is impossible to speak about, the biggest halal in history, second to the halal of creation, so to speak. That halal is that frightening place. But then the Arizal tells us, in almost the same language, in almost the same sentence, that the next step in this two-step dance was the re-emergence of the infinite back into the void. That the infinite which left in order to allow the void to take shape, the infinite that departed in order so that this finite world, this difficult space of anxiety and depression could materialize and congeal into what it looks like in its most grimacing and beautiful and powerful and disgusting moments, that that vacancy was only momentary because the next step was the reemergence of the light of infinity back into that finite space. That annihilating light of godliness back into that finite void, that existentially empty, vacant space of suffering and anxiety. But the Arizal asks a very simple question. What value is there for that which was once present and then absent to return again fully? Wouldn't that simply annihilate the previous absence? And the answer that the Arizal comes up with 
is that the infinite doesn't return with the same ferocity or the same volume or the same quantity as it existed previously, but rather the infinite returns in the form of a ray, in the form of a measured line, in the form of a kav. That's the language that the Arizal uses, a kav. And again, that language is of all importance because kav, as the Ramban tells us in the beginning of, of, of Parshas Parashas, is from the same language as kivoy or tikva, that the kav, that ray of light that re-enters into that empty space of the void, shares the same etymological root as kivoy, of yearning and of hope. And this kav enters back into this circle, not touching the bottom, not touching the bottom of the circle so as to ensure that the dimensions of differentiation and separation and concealment still exist so that the playing field of human volitionality and human choice between good and evil still exists so that the proper balance between darkness and light, concealment and revelation still exists. But that kav, that re-entrance of light back into the void is according to the Arizal, the first two steps of creation. Hopelessness and then hope. Emptiness and then a re-entrance into that emptiness with the hope that one day soon, somehow, some way, that infinity will return back to its original space. What we're going to see is that all of the different sadikim that we talk about and all of their different conceptions of hope that we're going to be discussing, that power of drawing the future into the present moment are all rooted in the Arizal's conception of the tzimtzum and the kav, of that initial contraction, that initial absencing of light, and the secondary and further re-entrance of hope and infinite light back into the void. Now, the Arizal asks a very important question. He says, if HaKadosh Baruch Hu was always going to leave this measurement of light in the void, then why fully remove everything to begin with? Why not simply leave this small amount of light to remain? Why go through the whole process of emptying that space and only then allowing that ray of light to re-enter? Why not just allow that ray of light to remain there from the beginning as if to say, why force existence to go through that terrifying and harrowing moment of utter hopelessness and utter voidedness and emptiness? Why couldn't we leave presence there in its minimal form as it was to begin with? And the Lashem Shubayv HaChaloyma and the Rebbe Rashab and the different tzaddikim that we're going to encounter throughout this process through the teachings of hope and hoping state unanimously, and the Arizal already brings it down in Eitz Chaim, the purpose of the Tzimtzum was to create the absence of light was to create that space wherein we felt things were hopeless. Because without hopelessness, there is no hope. 
Without absence, there is no possibility of presence re-emerging. Without difficulty, there is no value to light. Without the pain of that empty space, there is no joy and pleasure that emerges once that ray of light re-enters. So if we want to truly understand the power of hope, if we want to truly understand the potency of hope, we have to first taste momentarily the abysmal sense or fear of hopelessness, that frightening space of the halal or that chilul, of that perversion or that death-bringing speech. Because only when a person has tasted that can they truly hope. Only when a person is aware of how broken the present moment is can we truly force the future into the present moment. Because as we've taught so long and throughout all of the different series that we've given, is that true tefillah and true yearning is only born at the moment of powerlessness. It's only through our recognition of lack, our acknowledgement of impoverishment, our being lost in the forest in the heart of the night with nothing to eat, finding ourselves hanging out in the pit, dug into the mud, covered by branches, twigs, and garbage. It's only when we can experience that experience that we can be mitka'ageya and we can yearn and we can hope for those blind beggars to arrive again. <coughs> a teaching that I want to end with is a teaching from Rav Hutner. Now Rav Hutner conveys a message or conveys a teaching that I've yet to find in nearly any text, whether secular, religious, profane, holy, that discusses the potencies and the psychology of hope. Because here what Rav Hutner is going to describe in a very poignant way is going to be the fact that hope is the goal. The goal is not that our hope should be fulfilled but the goal is that we experience hope itself. That that waiting and that wanting and that yearning and that desiring and that not knowing and that hoping so deeply for the future to arrive. And even though it doesn't arrive, we still continue to hope is a much more poignant and potent spiritual experience than the one that arrives when Hashem reveals himself. So what Huttner is very clearly saying is that the goal of hope is not for hope to be settled through its satisfaction, but hope itself is the spiritual ideal. And this is going to be in Sefer Hasikaron, the biography written by Rav Yonas and David, but also by Rav Hutner's daughter, of Rebetz and Burya David. At the back of the diary, there are certain Hilchos Deos Salavavos. And this is going to be in Ois Chafhei, in the 25th teaching. And it's going to be very significantly, a teaching on Purim. It's a teaching on the verse, that in the joy of Purim, what we sing and what we daven for is that all of our hope should never dry out. In order to teach us, says Rav Hutner, that our hope should never dry out. And Rav Hutner says as follows, and I'm going to do my best to offer a clunky, kind of immediate translation of Rafutner's words. He says as follows, with all things in the world, <clears throat> when hope is finally satisfied, 
when hope is filled, the filling of that hope, the fulfillment of what we hope for, is the negation of hope. There's no more room to hope once we've been satisfied with what we hope for. And because with regards to Hashem and our relationship with God, the greatest richness in the world is the hope and the dependency on God itself, what would come out of this is that somebody's heart who is filled with hope and desire towards Hashem then finds salvation towards their hope, the experience of salvation would be a descent away from the spiritual heights of hope. Because at that moment when our hope is satisfied, we lose out on the potency of hoping. And the loss of hope that comes with hope's satisfaction is a much greater loss than the loss that would have been incurred had we never had our hope satisfied to begin with. It's a profound teaching. What he's saying is that hope is more valuable than what is hoped for. So what happens when what is hoped for arrives? What happens to the spiritual potency of hope itself? And here Rafutner says, this is what the Pismon is coming to teach us. That our relationship with Hashem is in such a way that even when we get what we hope for, even when our desires and our yearnings are fulfilled, Amir Tzashem, Tekef Umiyad Mamish, nevertheless, we will retain a residual trace of the experience of hope. That satisfaction, in spite of the fact that it is the polar opposite of desire, will somehow, in an impossible way, make room for desire in the space of wholeness. And that the culmination of what we hope for, even though that is the very annihilation of the act of hoping, will in a paradoxically impossible way make room for the existence of hope to survive its expiration and its fulfillment. Highlighting for us once again that as we find ourselves in the present moment, the goal is not to be frustrated over a future that has not yet come, but rather to experience the power and the potency of hope in the present moment itself. Bezrus Hashem, what we're going to discuss next week, Amir Hashem, as we continue the series on hope, is going to be the concept of redemption within exile and the very novel and unique understanding of two tzaddikim, very different yet very similar, Rav Shlomo Eliyashev, the Leshem Shobeva Chalema, and the Rebbe Rashav, Rav Shalom Dovber Schneerson, and their understanding of what happens towards the end of days, towards the precipice of redemption, when that ray of light, when that kav, begins to descend even into the lowest possible recesses imaginable to it. This podcast is supported in part from a grant from the Hadar Institute. The music is by Zusha. The audio engineer is David Kwan. For more from the Shefa Podcast Network, visit our Facebook page and please subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts.